Well, thank you for joining us for our Custom Home uh, Series Week 2. I think a lot of people who maybe are new to the Bible or new to uh, you know church going and whatnot, uh, they have this idea that Jesus came to help the down and outer, and he certainly did. But as we saw last week, Jesus often interacted with business people, uh, professionals and leaders, and said, I want to help you. Uh, life's been good to you. But let me tell you how you can find even a grander vision, a deeper meaning and purpose. And God created a custom journey, a custom experience with people, circumstances and events to help people grow spiritually. So with us today is my friend Craig Boehner, and I thought he might share a little bit about what uh, God's done in your journey and your customized way of finding a meaning, faith, activating that in your own life. So tell us about sort of what that journey's been like for you over the last, you know, five, ten years. Well, thanks a lot, Chad. It's great to be here. I just want to say first, though, that Brendan got to play bass last week. I didn't get to play drums today, Kenny. I don't know what's up with that. Yeah, thanks, Gig. Yeah, I, I've been asking them to play nose harp for years, and they don't invite me either, so it's really a so, tough anyway, crowd. Anyway, but thanks a lot. So, you know, I uh, grew up in church, and I accepted Christ as uh, my Savior at a very young age. Uh, but I would say that, you know, you go through stages in life, and the, the story I'll start is in 2002, and, you know, life was busy. I was uh, uh, doing very, very well at Procter & Gamble. We had three kids. And, you know, uh, we would go to church, but that was kind of it, going through the, the motions and and not really feeling, uh, I would say, engaged or mm-hmm. growing in a relationship with God. And uh, in 2002, uh, P&G came and they offered me a great assignment in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a promotion and it was a really great opportunity for our family. And, you know, we're off to Japan. And so we go to Japan and we get settled in there and we think, well, we should find a church. Yeah. Well, that actually was somewhat easy because there were only two churches. There, okay. were, there, was, there was the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Uh-huh. And, you know, we, being Protestant, we picked the Protestant Church. And it was a really interesting experience because um, there were, you know, everything from Lutherans to Methodists to Baptists, everybody going to this one church. So mm. you kind of had to forget about leave your religion at the door mm. and really think about getting uh, close to God and building a relationship. Yeah. And the other thing was, it was a small church, you know, maybe a couple hundred people. And so you had to get involved. You had hmm. to engage hmm. and activate your faith. Hmm. So it was the relationships, it was the engagement, and uh, rather than a lot of people, uh, that's the label, I'm a Christian, versus something you're actually doing. And so you're involved there, and what's sort of the next stage that God uses? So it's service, it's a career move to begin to you know, activate your faith as well. So we got very involved. I mean, Nancy started teaching Sunday school, and I started playing in the worship band. And we started uh, doing retreats, and we got into small groups, and we started mm-hmm. to build these relationships with mm-hmm. God and strengthen our relationship with God, but also with, with other believers, which mm-hmm. in turn grew our faith. Yeah. And so it was a, a very, very growthful experience to the point I actually uh, was invited to go on to the, uh, the board of the, of the church there, and I, uh, the last two years I was there, I was a leader of the church board and was able to make a contribution in that way. So even in the midst of all your busyness, you felt like you know, building relationships um, in a small group is important and even giving time to, to lead and be involved in the ministry going on there was good. Absolutely. It was, it was a completely growthful experience. And, you know, in retrospect, yes, it was a great career move. But, you know, we went to Japan because God needed to get us there for work that he had for us hmm. and for growth that he needed you know, to do me and my family to do, yeah. and P&G was the vehicle that took us there. Okay. And what was made the next custom journey as you headed back from Japan to back to the States? So our custom journey continues. We moved back to the States in 2006, and I settled into a new job at P&G, and we're looking for a church home. And uh, we knew that the church we had been going to before we went to Japan wouldn't be the right space because mm-hmm. we had 
you know, we had grown way past that. And so we looked for months and months. And finally, on the very first Sunday of 2007, uh, Nancy insisted that we, we try this new place that meets in this school in Indian Hill called Horizon. Yeah. And so we went to Horizon on that very first Sunday in 2007, and we knew instantly that's where God wanted us to be. Hmm. For many of the same reasons that we really uh, found Kobe Union Church so appealing. Mm-hmm. You had to kind of check your religion at the door. Horizon is about relationships. It's about yeah. connecting comfortably with others, and it's about being equipped in your faith and exploring your faith. Yeah. And we knew that was the kind of place for us. And it was also at the time, you know, you would walk in at uh, at, at the first service, and, and gosh, there might be more people on stage than there no, were. No, very true. Yeah. You had to get involved. Yeah, very much, like yeah. This. You had to get involved. And so we got involved at Horizon, and uh, of course, you know, eight years, nine years later, we haven't looked back at all. But it's been a great experience, you know, being in small groups, uh, going on mission trips. Uh, everybody in my family has been to Mexico at least once, many of us multiple mm-hmm. times, uh, believe. And, uh, of course, I was invited to be on the board at mm-hmm. Horizon, and God had used the time that I was on the board in Japan to prepare mm-hmm. me. Sure. And it was such an exciting time. As you'll remember, we were going through, well, what's God have envisioned? Train for, for the building and all these things. For the yeah. building and all those things. And then we, you know, we decided to build the building with God's guidance and going through managing through that explosive growth in 2011, 2012. And yeah. it was just a phenomenal experience. But God used that experience in Japan to prepare me to lead at Horizon. Yeah, and I remember um, the next phase, I remember, because we had a lot of lunches where you talked about a, a career move that was sort of the next time that God worked in you. A lot of time of prayer, a lot of time of you doing a lot of journaling, what's God saying to me, and you became a little bit more contemplative during that time, and that was sort of a new way God was working. Tell us a little bit about that. So in, in late 2010 into 2011, I felt God calling me out of Procter & Gamble. And I can distinctly remember driving to work, you know, down, going downtown and thinking, really, God? You know, I mean, I've been at P&G almost 20 years, and my whole life's here. My kids are here. Mm-hmm. Everything's here. And in a way, that is exactly why God needed to pull me out of P&G. Hmm. I had my identity tied up in Procter & Gamble, hmm. not in who I was as a, as a Christian and, hmm. and my faith. So God pulled me out of there. It was easy to see God pulling me out of P&G. It was less clear where he was pulling you to. Hmm. And that was really the growth part of that journey, the traveling the journey of, of not knowing, of completely depending on God, yeah. of knowing that he's going to take care of, of us, of me and my career, but more importantly, my family sure. and, and where we would end up. Right. And during that process, again, I remember a lot of prayers. You saying, boy, I've spent a lot more time in prayer uh, just because I have the time to do it and I'm seeking him out. Uh, so where did that end up leading you and how did God use that next experience? Yeah, it was a very grateful time, and eventually uh, God led me to a place that I never would have believed. Talk about a custom home. Yeah. Uh, he sent me to Wendy's in Columbus as chief marketing officer, and that was a real kind of detour from what I thought I would do. Um, but it turned out to be a, a great experience. I learned a lot, uh, did well in that role, and you know, we, I was able to commute to Columbus so that our, our kids, our, our younger two children, could finish high school here mm-hmm. at Indian Hill. And... You know, one of the things I didn't realize when I took the job that, that became very important was, of course, Wendy's was founded by a gentleman called, named Dave Thomas. Yeah. And Dave Thomas was adopted. Yeah, I did, I did a little research and prep for this. Right. That was pretty cool. Yeah, he, he was adopted at a very young age by his grandmother, and his grandmother died and all this stuff. So he had a real passion for, for the cause of adoption, particularly foster care adoption. And so he established the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, and that was very special to me because uh, uh, Nancy and I are adopted parents. Yeah. And so it was an opportunity. I served on that board. Yeah. And, in fact, one of the, the highlights of that experience came in at, at our annual convention where our suppliers and, and all the 
franchisees and all the employees come in, and we were in Chicago, and the foundation asked me, would you be willing to share your story of uh, adopting Anna from Russia? Yeah. And I said I would, and I got up on stage in front of uh, uh, probably 12 or 1,300 people, mm-hmm. and I told that story, and in that one night, we raised over a million dollars for the cause of foster wow. care adoption. Wow. And, you know, Anna, I think, is out there somewhere. Honey, it's your story, and it's God's story. I just had the honor to tell it. it. Wow. So God uses you and to now not only impact your own faith, but now you're impacting all kinds of folks. You know, you probably won't even find out until heaven exactly who got impacted by that moment. Yeah, hopefully a lot of people. And cool. hopefully some kids get adopted into great homes as a result. So what's, what's the, re- so the current stage now? What's the most recent thing God's done in your custom journey? So I enjoyed three years at Wendy's. When my contract was up in April, uh, I decided I wasn't going to stay. I wanted to get back into consumer goods, and I wanted to get back into uh, a P&L opportunity. And that was uh, in April 2015. And I thought, I'm going to take 2015. I'll cast the net wide. I'll yeah. see what's out there. You know, I've got plenty of time. Well, God has other plans. I got a call in early 2015 from Kellogg's, and they were mm-hmm. looking for a leader to run their morning foods division. Uh-huh. And I took an interview, and one thing led to another, and mm-hmm. I was offered the job. And I'm, you know, finishing up my eighth month now yeah. at Kellogg's up in Michigan. And um, it's been a very, very interesting experience. I'm loving the job, but more importantly, uh, I'm starting to see where God is taking and how He's prepared me for the next level. So, uh, and and there are. Four kind of things that I'll talk about real quickly. First of all, I work for a food company, and mm-hmm. our signature cause is called Breakfast for Better Days. And to date, we've given over one billion breakfasts to children who need to start their day with a healthy, wholesome breakfast. That's cool. The second is that uh, you know Kellogg's was also had an innovative founder named Mr. W. K. Kellogg, and he also was very philanthropic. Mm-hmm. And he fa- he started a foundation cool. called the W. K. Kellogg Foundation, and the mission of that foundation is to uh, improve the lives of children. Huh. And so I'm starting to make some connections oh, and get involved with, uh-huh. with, the, uh, with that. Also, I was uh, asked uh, about a year and a half ago to go on the advancement committee of the Board of Trustees of Ohio State. And I love that. I went to Ohio State. OH! <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, very good. That's impressive. That was impressive. Yeah, impressive. Uh, so I went, I'm on the advancement committee of, of the Board of Trustees, and Ohio State is embarking on a food scarcity initiative, and we'll spend about $125 million on the cause of food scarcity. And tomorrow, uh, in fact, once we're finished here, I head to D.C., and I'm speaking with the, the, the Secretary of Agriculture, and I'm speaking to 1,200 people uh, in the National Anti-Hunger Policy Conference. Wow. And uh, about the cause of, of hunger. And I don't know those four things I just described. I don't know where it's going. Right. But I know that God has put some intersecting circles and he stuffed me right in the middle of it. Oh, that's cool. And he's going to tell me what I need to do next. And he's mm-hmm. prepared me for that custom journey and that custom home. So I'm really excited to see what he does with it. That's awesome. Can we thank Craig for sharing his story this morning? I appreciate it, man. Thanks. You know, there is some unique, often it's easier to see God's will in the rearview mirror as you see what he has been doing than to see it through the windshield. Um, but part of what God does in our life, he tries to take our life and turn it from a house into a home. And part of what we're trying to do as a church is help you on your customized journey, figure out what God has for you next, a deeper purpose, deeper meaning. How do we help, help you join with what God's doing in your life? I love this next song because it speaks to that whole idea. How do you take just a facility, a box, a thing like a, a house and turn it into a home? That's what we're trying to do in our custom home journey. Let's listen. Well, today we're going to look at how Jesus not addressed the blunt, but he uh, addressed the successful. 
He addresses a man named Nicodemus, and he does it in a pretty powerful way, like creating a home with the fire, with the music, with, the, with just the right things. Jesus interacts with Nicodemus in a way that is so customized in his journey. And I think that's what happens in homes, right? In homes, you have customized conversations. It's a place you feel safe. It's a place you feel loved. But it's also a place that you're going to be challenged. A spouse is going to challenge you with maybe some things that, that if you were single, you wouldn't have to address. Or your parents are going to pull you aside and say, listen, I love you enough that we've got to have this talk. I was reading in John Ortberg's book, The Me I Want to Be, a time that his wife decided to have one of these challenging conversations in their home. He says this, One evening, my wife Nancy pulled me into our bedroom and said she wanted to talk. She closed the door so none of the kids could hear, and she took out a list. I was not happy to see a list. She claims it was an index card, not a list, but it had words written on it, so to me it was a list. You know, she said, when our marriage is at its best, I feel like we share responsibilities. We divide our work well, and our kids see us do that, and I feel valued. And I think that's important to our family. But for some time, because you feel so many demands on your life, this value seems to be slipping in our marriage. You see, when our marriage is working well, I feel like we both know each other's lives. You know details about my life, and I know details about yours. And I feel like that's been slipping recently. Lately, I know a lot of what's going on with you, but I'm not sure you've had time to ask me much about what's going on with me. And she went on. When our marriage is at its best, you also bring a kind of lightness and joy to our marriage. She reminded me of a story. When we were on our second date in the lobby of Disneyland Hotel waiting to get something to eat, she had to use the restroom. So when she came out, there were scores of people in the lobby, and I was in a goofy mood. So I said loudly enough for all of them to hear, Woman, I can't believe you kept me waiting for two hours. Her immediate response was, Well, I wouldn't have to do this if you didn't insist having your mother live with us. So I'd have to wait on her hand and foot every day. She yelled that right across the lobby on our second date. I thought... I like this woman. Nancy told me that story and said, you know, when our marriage is at its best, you can listen and laugh and be spontaneous. You haven't been doing that for a while. I love that guy. I miss that guy. I knew what she was talking about. I miss that guy too, I told her. I'd love to feel free like that, but I feel like I'm carrying so many burdens. I've got personal issues and financial challenges at work. I have a writing project I'm working on, travel commitments. I feel like I'm carrying this weight all the time. I get what you're saying, but I need you to know I'm doing the best I can. No, you're not, she responded. That's not what you're supposed to say. Everybody's supposed to nod their head sympathetically when you say I'm trying to do my best. But Nancy loves truth and me too much to do that. So she rang my bell. No, you're not. You've talked about how it would be good to see a counselor or an executive coach or maybe a spiritual director, but you've talked about it. You're not doing it. It's often in our home that we create. And I love what she did there. She tried to create a place that was private. She tried to do it in a very encouraging way. She tried to say, hey, I want the best for us. She tried to do what Jesus is going to do today with Nicodemus. She tried to create the most comfortable place to have the most challenging conversation. And that is a real art. And we need that with our kids. We need that with colleagues. We need that with bosses. We need that in marriages. We need to learn how to create the most comfortable place to have the most challenging conversations. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And the secret in how he does it is just so brilliant. We can follow his patterns in creating crucial conversations in our lives as well. Let's begin by looking at how Jesus created a safe environment with a man named Nicodemus. This guy named Nicodemus is pretty intriguing. Uh, 
the John 3.16 verse that many of us have heard of before come out of this passage. But it begins in John 3 saying, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, Nicodemus doesn't mean much to us, maybe, but in his day, he was a household name. The Talmud tells us that he is one of the three richest, most affluent people in all of Jerusalem. He threw a wedding for his daughter, and that wedding was so opulent, so impactful, they said it was the greatest event Jerusalem had in its history, the wedding for his daughter. It is said that his estate was so large that it could have sustained all of Jerusalem for decades. He would be the equivalent of the CEO of Apple or Google today. He would be a senator today. He would be a well-respected religious leader of his day. He was a ruler of the community. He was a Pharisee, a very man committed to doing the right thing. In fact, the Pharisees were very popular amongst the people because they found a way of taking the spiritual truths of their day and putting them into ways that could be acted out by, by ordinary folks. Oh, I get it. I understand it. Very moral a great leader, a household name. He was actually known as the professor, the teacher of Israel. He was an academic. He'd been trained in one of the top schools uh, in the whole area, so the Harvard of the day that I mentioned last week with Gamaliel. And so this leader is starting to become interested in spiritual things Jesus is saying. But he's supposed to be the expert. So Jesus will create a customized journey to create the, the most comfortable environment to have the most challenging conversations with him. A couple things he does. First of all, Jesus offers very eclectic scheduling. See, the man comes to Jesus by night. Now, why by night? Well, because he's busy. This guy works. This guy is working in a leader in all of Jerusalem. This guy has high demands for his time. And so Jesus customizes his schedule to make sure he can meet with this guy one-on-one in a conversation by night. And Nicodemus comes to him. And Nicodemus, because of the the personal approach, the customized journey, the eclectic scheduling involved here, he's able to ask some questions that he probably wouldn't ask in a group. Like, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's going to go on and say, but I'm not sure really what your message is all about. For some of us, getting into a group situation is a great way to have spiritual conversations. But for many of us, it's not at all. We, are not, we don't open up to anyone, certainly not in a group. We need to build trust first. And so Jesus creates a one-on-one relationship with Nicodemus to honor his privacy, to give him some appropriate guarded place, a comfortable place to have these conversations. I know many times we'll get calls to the pastoral staff or somebody wants to meet with one of us, and you know, we rarely meet at Starbucks because no one can really have a conversation at Starbucks because who knows who's walking past you? Our marriage is in trouble. One of my sons is not really obeying what he should. It's the same reason why uh, couples groups are a great place to make friendship, but rarely do you ever share anything legitimate in a couples group. You don't know what I'm talking about? It, it looks like this. You're sitting in a couples group. Your wife is next to you. So what's going on? Well, you know, my wife and I had a fight last night. Boom! Oh, apparently we're not supposed to share that, right? You can't be safe because you're like, okay... Maybe one-on-one with another guy, I could be, okay, I'm really having some issues. What do you think I need to do? So creating the kind of schedule and customized environment where you can be real about what you're struggling with was very important to Jesus. He does this with Nicodemus. It's also one of the reasons as a church we try and create safe places for people to, uh, to ask questions. In fact, one of the reasons we created this custom home book is because you might say, I can't make it to a group. 
We do have groups you can sign up for on our website. We're out at the uh, book table today. And we've customized this journey so each one stands on its own. So if you can't make all the weeks because your schedule's busy, you might just want to go to number one or number three or number five. So if you want to go through this journey of discovering what Jesus did and what your pathway to God might be like, you can do that in a group. But we also create it as a way you could do it on your own. Just sort of go through and say, hey, I'd like to dig into the Bible, and this seems like a, an easy way to jump into the, maybe the, the, the process, because I've never really studied the Bible before. Or this could be a journey like you do with Jesus, with Nicodemus. You say, hey, i got a friend of mine. He and I both have eclectic schedules. I want to take a friend of mine through this book. Just the two of us, because we can meet this week, Thursday at 5, and uh, two weeks from now we'll meet at lunch on Fridays, because we are busy people. And Jesus recognized us with Nicodemus. The second thing he did is that Jesus offered a safe place for questions. Now remember, this guy is supposed to be the professor, the teacher of Israel. He's going to have to have some very safe place to say, I don't know that one. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time through his mother's womb? Now, if you've ever been in a Bible study, and maybe you're like, I've never been in a Bible study. In fact, I don't want to go to a Bible study because I don't want to feel foolish. I understand. Because you show up and you ask a question. Hey, I'm looking for the book of Job. I can't find it. There's a, a book called Job, J-O-B. Because you didn't realize that the Bible pronounces Job, Job. Or you say, hey, what's this Italian prophet, Malachi? Well, that's Malachi. Oh, and you feel stupid. Not because you are stupid, just because you've been building your career for the last 30 years. You haven't had time to build into this book. And yet, it's hard to get into a Bible study because you're like, I don't want to feel foolish. And if you're like me, I avoid places I feel foolish. And so, creating a safe place to have conversations is so important. I remember when I was in ninth grade, I was a, ran track, I was a 110 high hurdler and also uh, um, a long jumper. And I decided my freshman year I was going to start going to the weight room and working out. You can see it didn't work real well, but uh, I did uh, start that journey. And I remember when I was in ninth grade, I go into the workout room and I thought, you know, i got to start somewhere. So I went and I got the bench press and I got the bar and they're about to put weights in the bar. I'm like, let me just start with the bar. And I'm like, oh my God. I couldn't even lift the bar. And I'm embarrassed by that fact, but I'm like, hey, you've got to start somewhere. This is sort of the journey. But I'm already a little embarrassed, not feeling real safe. And as I'm pushing the bar up for the second time, I see both my coaches out of the corner of my eye looking into the weight room. And they both look at me for a second, then I realize I can see them, and they both burst out laughing. <laughs> this is not an appropriate time to laugh, I just want you to know. My, I'm trying to be open. I'm trying to share my deep-seated pain. Man. And you know what's interesting, though? That moment, even though I really wanted to progress and I wanted to challenge myself to get stronger, that moment, that look from those coaches, I never went back to the weight room my entire high school career. In fact, I probably didn't go to the weight room until about five, ten years ago. Because every time I walked in, I went, this is a place I look stupid and feel stupid. Jesus had an ability to help people who were new to faith or had just never explored the Bible, or in this case, an expert in the Bible, Create safe a place to ask any question, to express doubts, to express wonders, to say, help me understand this. And that's what he does here. The third thing he says in answering this question, how can a man be born again? Jesus had a value of telling people something they didn't know. 
We know that education is a high value in our community. And so one of the things we do as a creative team is we work really, really hard on the research side to make sure every week you show up and go, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Wow, that would really help my marriage. Wow, that's an interesting insight. Jesus had a value that resonates in our challenging Bible teaching uh, value as a church is we want to tell you something you don't know that you never heard before. Jesus turns to him and says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone born of the spirit to which you and I are like that was supposed to help. Right. Now, see, it's okay to feel that way. That, that, that didn't clear it up for me, Jesus. However, I want to propose to you that Jesus customized this particular analogy to a passage that Nicodemus, as a scholar in the law, would have known from the Old Testament. So if you remember as a kid, there was a, there was a song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, the hand bones connected to the arm bone, arm bones connected to the shoulder bone. That's why they don't ask me to sing, by the way. Um, do you remember that song? If, if not, there's a song about that. And uh, for the three of you who are nodding your heads, um, there's a passage in Ezekiel that would have been very familiar, which God brings Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones. And he basically assembles all the bones in this vision. And he says, can these bones live? They've got bones. No, they can't. So then God, in this vision, puts flesh on the bones. They got muscles. They got skin. Sort of sees it's like a CSI episode. God puts them all together and says, OK, now they got a body. They have flesh. Can they live? No, they're just a a body. They don't have life. They don't have consciousness yet. That's right, because even a body with bones and flesh requires life to be breathed into it. And so in this vision in Ezekiel, the spirit breathes life into these uh, bones and they come to life and they form an army. Very familiar passage. And the point of this very familiar passage is that we are not, the problem in human existence is not we're, we're bad people who need to be good. That's how most people see religion. I'm a bad person and religion will help me be better. That is not the Bible's framework at all. The Bible's framework is not where bad people need to be good. It's that we're dead people who need to be made alive. And the reason we're self-centered, the reason we're not thankful, the reason that we can do the wrong thing, even the thing we know is the right thing to do, we don't do it, is because we've got these dead spots. And so a dead person can't help himself be more alive. He needs to have life breathed into him. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You need God to breathe life into you. You're religious, you're moral, you're a great leader, but you've got dead spots. You don't have the Spirit of God breathing into you and making your spirit alive. All those good things you're doing are good, but they're not have life breathed into them. And that's what I want you to discover, the kind of purpose and meaning and peace that comes from God living in you and breathing through you. Huh. How does he respond? Well, again, another principle Jesus has in these conversations is that Jesus creates a safe place to express doubts. Nicodemus says, huh? How can these things be? Now Jesus is going to challenge him pretty hard, actually, here. But again, I want to reiterate that one of the things that's a real value at our church, both in our small groups and in our environments on Sundays, is we want you to know every question is okay. This is a place to express doubts. None of us grow our faith if we don't express our doubts first. And we want to create a safe place where you don't get embarrassed. 
Now, I get embarrassed every once in a while. I showed up to a women's group years ago, and they said, we want to ask you our hardest questions. I'm like, all right, great. So I'm sitting there in the hot seat, and I said, okay, what's the first question? In the women's group, only guy there, did I mention that? Dripping with estrogen. And the question that they ask me is, why do you think God chose circumcision? I don't feel safe uh, or very comfortable here. Reminds me in Bible college one time, we're in this gigantic room for Old Testament survey, and this girl raised her hand. I mean, there's 200 people in this class, and a genuine question, but she turns to the teacher, can I ask you a question about Abraham? Uh, sure, well, what's your question? Why would God want a piece of their forehead taken off them for a foreskin? And so, instead of saying, hey, let's talk after class, that would have been a safe place to... He, he went and told her for the next five minutes what a foreskin was as she shrunk deeper and deeper into her class. So we want you to know we try and honor that there are great questions and some weird stuff in the Bible. We want to create a safe place for you to ask these questions, just like God does with Nicodemus. Now, he creates this safe place. You can ask questions. You can ask doubts so that not he can water it down so that in these private, intimate conversations, these guarded, safe places. He can really challenge a leader because as a leader, I want to get better as a husband. I want to get better as a leader. I want to get better as a dad. I want to be challenged, but I want to be challenged in a comfortable, safe place so my defense mechanisms don't come up, so I don't have to defend myself. I want to know the person interacting with me trusts me and that I trust them, that if they're going to challenge me, if they're going to push on some things I need to work on, it's because I know they really have my best. So Jesus creates a safe environment. And now he really uses challenging Bible teaching with this guy named Nicodemus. And the first thing we see is that Jesus challenged people to think and to know. Now, why do I say think and know? Most people think a church is a place you go to get a lobotomy. I mean, it's like the last place you go to think. You just like, hear the propaganda from the Bible. But Jesus challenged you to really think through the implications of your beliefs and of truths. But more than that, he challenged us to know. The Bible is ultimately about knowing God, not doing things for God. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's a relationship. He says, Nicodemus, you've got the ritual down. You've got the religion down. You've got the good works down. The thing you don't have down is God living in you. You don't know him of a relationship with him. And you should know these things. Look what he says. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the, the teacher of Israel? And again, this is a customized phrase. If you talk to anybody in Jerusalem, hey, who is the expert's expert? Who is the academic? Who's the philosopher? Who's the teacher? Who's the, the Bible answer guy? Nicodemus. He's the professor. He's the teacher of Israel. Now, Jesus, this is pretty challenging. If this is your nickname, Jesus turns to you, the teacher of Israel, and says, can I ask you something? Aren't you known as the teacher of Israel? Yeah. How can you not know what Ezekiel talks about, that God needs to breathe life into us? How did you miss that? You get all the little details down, but you miss the elephant in the room. You don't know God. Now, this would either be humiliating if you're in a group setting. Your defense mechanism would go, well, it's not true. I, I knew that. But in this private, personal conversation, one-on-one, -on -one, Jesus could challenge him to really think about, how did you miss this? One of the things that strikes me a lot as we walk around Horizon is, uh, I just talked to a guy a few weeks ago. He said, you know, I'm new to the church. I've been coming about two years. And the thing that strikes me about every week as I show up, whether you're equipping service where you go verse by verse through the Bible or you're exploring service where we dig into topics, he said, I didn't realize how much there was to know. 
think about. I never thought of myself as thinking when I was in church. I was like, well, that's a shame. But that's often true. In fact, for those who've been here for a few years, you might say, why are we always learning new things? Because our elders and I and our teaching team, we actually are teaching through a master's degree. So we have a seven to ten year educational curriculum scope and sequence that we're teaching behind our series. So every year, every year you're hearing, every month you're hearing new material. So over seven to ten years, you're actually learning or getting a master's degree in the kind of things that we're covering and experiencing from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're covering economics, we're covering philosophy. Because we think the value of knowing and integrating truth is high. And and in church, you should be integrating truth. You should know and think there based on what Jesus talks about. The second thing Jesus does is challenging is he, he would challenge people with questions. I love even that opening illustration about the wife and her husband. Very affirming, very loving, but she used questions. Jesus did this all the time. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen. And you, Nicodemus, do not receive what we're telling you. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I just gave you an example that the wind, you don't see the wind, you just see the results of the wind. That's an earthly example. In the same way, the Spirit of God, you don't always see Him, His Spirit, but you do see His interaction in people's lives, the love, the peace, the hope. She says, how can I teach you heavenly things if you don't even understand earthly things? And Jesus was so brilliant at using questions, what the Greeks called the Socratic method, what Jesus, as a, as a Jewish rabbi, called the rabbinic method. He used questions to dig deeper. I was talking to a couple guys uh, recently, about six months ago. They said they, there's a CEO here in Cincinnati who is just known for his lack of words. But everyone wanted to meet with him. I said, well, tell me about that. He said, well, I got a chance to meet with him several years ago. And I was interacting with him. We're having lunch together. And I must, have, I must have talked for about 20 minutes. And for the first time, he spoke. And all he did is he asked me one pointed question. And I went, oh, my goodness, I haven't thought of that. And I talked a little bit longer. And he asked me one more pointed question about my business. And I went, that's what I need to do. I walked out of that meeting. I realized he didn't give me any advice. He just asked the two questions I needed to grow deeper. Often with our kids, we lecture, and I'm guilty of it. What we really need to do is ask the right questions to help bring out the issues, to bring out the questions, to bring out the challenges. And Jesus was a master at this. Third thing, as Jesus explains what he meant, Jesus is going to say the main message of the Bible is not what you think it is. It's good news, not good advice. Now, it takes people sometimes decades to get this. So I'm going to just spend a little time on it because this is so key. The Bible is not good advice because good advice is stuff you and I should do. And there's, there is some advice in the Bible, but that's not primarily what the Bible is. The Bible is primarily good news about what God did, not good advice about what you should do. And so Jesus is talking to one of the most moral, one of the most upstanding people who have done a lot of good things. He's saying, yeah, but you don't realize the main message of the Bible is not about good people being good people. It's about a good God who breathes life into dead people. Look what he says. No one has ascended into heaven. We'll stop there. The message of the Bible is not how you work hard enough to ascend into heaven. It's the opposite. It's about God coming down from heaven. That is me, the son of man who was in heaven. And then he references something customized to Nicodemus. Just as Moses one time lifted up a snake to be put on a 
a staff, and the people would look at that staff and believe that if if they believed, not did anything, believed that God would heal them, God would heal them. And Jesus goes on. So, just like what Moses did, whoever believes in me should not perish, but have eternal life. Not work harder, not be a good... But if you believe in me, that I am God, and I've come to forgive you, and I've come to be in a relationship with you, you don't perish, but you have eternal life. And here's the verse we've all seen at football games. For God so loved the world... This is good news what God does. God loves you. That he, look at the good news that God did. He gave, it's good news. God loved, God gave, this is news. His only begotten son, me, so that you, what? Believe that. And if you believe that, you don't perish. But you get confident, eternal, everlasting life. You don't wish for it. You don't hope for it. You don't work for it. You believe he gives it to you as a gift. Look how many times he says believe. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Now this is shocking because you go to most religious experiences and it feels like the whole thing's about condemnation. It's like you walk into the service, a big blanket of condemnation. And you're trying the whole service to get out from underneath the blanket. No, no, Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that through him and belief in him you would be saved, which means rescued from or delivered from guilt, delivered from shame, delivered from bondage. It's a deliverance. That's why the first four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called Gospels, which mean good news. It's news about what God did for you, not advice on what you should do for him. That takes people decades. That's just too simple. I don't get it. That can't be true. Now, notice there's also some words in here about you're not going to perish so let's talk about that for a moment. In order to understand the good news, you need to first understand the bad news. The bad news is, the Bible says that we're all on a crash course toward perishing. Our self-centeredness, our, our inability to live up to our own standards, let alone God's, these dead spots that are in us. Our bodies are falling apart. We don't think the right thoughts. We don't feel the right things. We don't even want the right things. We find ourselves wanting things that are destructive. That God needs to breathe life into those things. But if you don't realize that you're in trouble, you're not going to need a solution. If you're sitting on an airplane, I come by and I throw you a parachute and say, put this on. You're like, put it on. This is so uncomfortable. These seats are already, even in first class, I can't get the parachute on. You don't think you need a parachute. If, however, you're, you hear, we're going down. We're going down. We're headed toward a mountaintop. And I say, would you put a parachute on? Give me that parachute. It might make me more uncomfortable in my seat. But we're going down. The door's going to fly open any minute. Make sure you jump out. Make sure you have a parachute. You suddenly are interested in somebody giving you a parachute because you have a problem. If you don't think there's a problem, bad news, you're not going to understand the good news that God came to rescue us from the trajectory we're on. Which is why Jesus sort of goes on here at this fourth point. He says, this is not something you do. It's something you believe. He who believes in him, believes this news, that God came to rescue you to forgive you is not condemned. You don't walk around in guilt and shame because you know all your guilt, all your shame, past, present, future, was forgiven by God through Jesus taking the consequences that you deserved on the cross. However, if you don't believe that, you're already condemned because you're going to have to justify that you really are a good person. And Jesus says, even Nicodemus, who's the, the gold standard of, of goodness, Nicodemus, even you know, that if I put all your secrets all your thoughts, all your moments, 
you're not as good as you appear to be to others, are you? You're condemned. You need somebody else to forgive you, somebody who's lived a perfect life. And here's the main difference between religion and this message of the Bible called good news. Religion is I obey so I can be accepted by God. The message of the Bible is because I'm accepted by God through Jesus, I want to obey. Both have acceptance. Both have obedience. The one is conditional. I've got to earn it. And how do you know if you earned it? You just keep working it. Do the treadmill. Just keep working it. The other side is I have it. I have confidence. I have contentment. I have peace with God. Therefore, I want to obey him because he gave me confidence. He gave me a right standing with God. It's something you don't do. It's something you believe through what Jesus did on the cross. Now, this message is so powerful. It actually reminds me a little bit of the Dave Thomas example because adoption is a name, a phraseology that the Bible uses for talking about its message. Adoption is not something an adopted son or daughter does. You don't go and get yourself adopted. Adopting is something done to you by someone else. And so what happens is when you get adopted, someone chooses you, someone invites you into their family, and you become part of that family based on what they did. And the good news is I've been chosen, I've been loved, I'm part of a family. That's the message of the Bible. God wants to choose you. God wants to invite you. And all you have to do is say, I need to be chosen. I'm an orphan. I need something to breathe life into me because I find myself doing things I shouldn't be doing. I've got dead spots. Challenging conversation Jesus has. And Nicodemus is so impacted by this and other conversations that Jesus, Nicodemus, does decide to trust Christ to be his forgiver and the leader of his life. So much so that Nicodemus, one of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem, will end up losing everything. To the point at which he'll end up having to live with Gamaliel, his old teacher, His daughter, who had the most opulent wedding in all of Jerusalem, will find herself begging for food during those years because he's so shunned as the religious professor, the academic of his day, who looked at the evidence and decided to follow Jesus. To which you might say, this is not a good selling point, Chad. Unless you think of it this way. The smartest man alive said, what I have, as valuable as it looks, my fame, my influence, my money was worth giving up because of what I found. What I found was more valuable. I now know for sure I have peace with God. I now know for sure that I have riches in the next life that are secure. And whatever I lose now is nothing compared to what I gained. In the word of an old missionary, he said, He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. That's what Nicodemus found. And it changed his life. Now let's apply this to our life. So Jesus, again, was full of grace and truth. He had this ability to create safe environments with grace, to have the most challenging conversations with truth. Jesus was a master at creating crucial conversations. And I want to apply this to our life because I think this is a skill that we all need. I know I need. Uh, There's a great book that goes into some details on this. It's called Crucial Conversations. How do you create the most comfortable environments to create the most challenging conversations with colleagues, with friends, with spouses, with with kids, with bosses. What they found is one of the reasons we're not good at it, we're either too truthful with not enough safety, or we're too safe with not enough truth. It's really hard to be good at both, and Jesus was a master at it. And often what happens is we know we need to have a tough conversation, but the time between 
we know we need to have it, and we get the courage to finally have it, it's just a long, long time. And sometimes by the time you have the conversation, you've decided to fire them. You've decided to give up on the marriage. So much bitterness has grown in you during that time. And you should have had that crucial conversation, creating that safe place to have that challenging conversation, but you just waited too long. And he says in his book that we believe a lie. The lie we believe as a kid is, I can't be your friend and tell you the truth. I've got to choose one or the other. So they did an experiment, and they said, if we gave you a magic wand, and you could suddenly know for sure there'd be no negative consequences to your conversation, what are the things you would say right now that you don't have the courage to say? And here are a few of the responses that came back. To my boss, for eight years, you single-handedly drove away every good employee we've ever had. I can no longer tolerate your condescending tone, your passive micromanaging, your overt verbal sexual harassment towards female employees, your hypocritical management of work time, or even your insincere compliments. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Crucial conversations are critical, but often we're so scared of what will happen when we have the conversation, we don't have it. What we don't think about is the cost of not having the conversation. Look at the cost embedded in here of not having that conversation. Look at the bitterness that's already built up. Look at all the good employees that have been lost. Look at all the women who have been harassed. Look at all the micromanagement, the work that hasn't been released. See, if we don't get good at having safe, challenging conversations early, the cost is all the stuff that begins to build up. We need to learn what Jesus did, how to have those conversations sooner, quicker, before all that time passes. Here's another one. Again, look at the cost. To my colleague, I betrayed your trust by sharing confidential information that you shared with me with another peer. I apologize, and I would change it if I could. If the person could have the conversation, they'd like to apologize, own up to their gossip, own up to their maliciousness, own up to this dead spot in them. Oh, my goodness, I do the things I would want somebody to do to me. Look at the cost to the friendship. Look at the cost to trust. There's a cost to not having crucial conversations. So we've got to get good at the grace side, safe environment, and the challenging side, the truth side. Here's another one to my direct report. Find a different job now. While I cannot prove it, I know that you stir up trouble between your coworkers. You don't pay attention to your job. You lack respect for anyone. You take no responsibility for your actions and you blame others. What if every time they didn't take responsibility? What if every time you saw this, you caught it and could have that one-minute manager conversation and say, listen, I saw what happened in the meeting today. Listen, that's just not acceptable. Let's figure out what's going on. Rather than waiting to the point at which you've got to find another job. We need to learn from Jesus how to have crucial conversations. The cost is just too high. How about this to my husband? And this is why if we're not good at doing this in our marriages, and we can all be better Stakes are just too high to not be good at this. I feel frustrated by the mess and clutter in our house. I love you, but I just can't stand this anymore. I've been patient for a long time. It appears that you don't care. In addition, I think you need professional help to deal with your hoarding tendencies. I want to get some counseling, and I think you should too. Now, you can tell by this, it's taken so long before this conversation came out. And I just know in life, when we don't learn to have these conversations, it takes so long that by the time we have the conversation, it sounds like let's get divorced, not 
Let's fight for this together. See, if you don't talk it out, you act it out. And that's why Jesus wants us to know how to have these kind of conversations and how to ask him to breathe his grace and his truth into us. Because if we don't talk it out, we act it out. As one elderly couple found, an older gentleman turned to his wife and said, Honey, whenever I get mad at you, you seem to get up, you never seem to get upset. How do you manage to control your temper? She says, I just go and clean the toilet. To which he says, How does that help? To which she replies, I use your toothbrush. If we don't learn to talk it out, we act it out. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be better at having crucial conversations with our teenagers. We want to be better at having crucial conversations with our spouses. We want to be better at having crucial conversations with our our colleagues, our bosses, our employees. God, often it's fear or a lack of graciousness or a lack of being able to tell the last 10% of the truth. God, we just ask as we go through this customized journey, we will learn as much by what you're saying, your message, as we are about your method, that your customized method is so powerful that you would teach us how we can better the relationships in our life by following you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. Again, if you've not got a custom home journey, we'd love to give that to you. If you want to sign up for one of our groups, you can go to our website or check in there. If you came prepared to give financially, there's some offering boxes on the way out. Thanks again for being here.